BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So can the grifters be stopped? You know, there's a lot going on, but I wanted to start out just asking the question, do you think they're going to get away with it? You know, I really think this is like the question of the day or of the year or of the month or something. Are these grifters in the Trump administration going to get away with this? I mean, you know, well, let me let me lay it out. Trump and Fox News and the nation's billionaires, I was interested to hear this morning on NPR, they actually did a story about how these open the country movements are actually basically being run by people from Freedom Works or affiliated with Freedom Works. You know, the Koch brothers right wing group that did the Tea Party. You know, the anti-Obamacare Tea No, we don't want no stinking health care. Now it's, yes, we want to die from the coronavirus. <laughs> it's, it's like, okay, so they're all working together and they're making, in my opinion, a huge bet. You know, back in 2000, when Mike Pence was writing op-eds for his local newspapers in Indiana, when he was a talk show host, and actually it might have been when he was a congressman, whatever it was, in 2000, he was writing op-eds saying tobacco doesn't cause cancer. Of course, his family owned a series of fast food stores called Tobacco Row that have since gone out of business. (laughs) It was Mike Pence, of course. But anyhow, he was telling people in Indiana, tobacco doesn't cause cancer, don't worry, be happy, go ahead and smoke, or words to that effect. And, you know, he was never held responsible for that, even though thousands of people probably in Indiana died as a result of his advice. When Donald Trump and the coal lobbyists that he put in charge of the EPA said, you know, hey, this pesticide that we know causes neurological damage in children and probably causes cancer, We're going to let it back into the market, even though it's banned in pretty much every other country in the world, but it's really profitable. It's cheap to manufacture, and they sell it really expensively because it's EPA regulated. So it's a big profit item for our big chemical company donors. You know, when Trump and his EPA guy, you know, the coal lobbyist said, yeah, we're going to put poison back into the American food supply, producing cancer and neurological diseases. Odds are these guys will never be held responsible for that. Cancers don't pop up with a little flag that says, I'm here because Donald Trump deregulated the EPA. You know, when Steve Mnuchin robo-signed thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of phony mortgage documents in order to steal homes from people in California back when he was known as the foreclosure king and Kamala Harris, you know, she had a clear, open window, great opportunity to throw his ass in jail ultimately decided not to. 
he not only got, you know, bore no responsibility for that, he got to be treasurer of the United States. His signature is on your money. You know, when Fox News was promoting the Tea Party, and, you know, of course, the Kochs and all these other right-wing billionaires, when they were promoting the Tea Party campaign to stop Obamacare, to stop the expansion of Medicaid, and Harvard University came out and said, you know, there's 30,000, 40,000 Americans are going to die if you don't expand these programs. But they were successful. The red states still don't have Medicaid. Florida still doesn't have it. And they're about to have an explosion of coronavirus down there. Well, when that happened, you know, nobody was held responsible. Fox News wasn't held responsible. Nobody sued them. You know, when Charlene Dill died, when Rick Scott was governor, refusing to expand Medicaid, eh, who cares, right? It's just a mother of three. She doesn't have much money. She makes a living cleaning houses, after all. So nobody, t- you know, nobody went after Fox for that. So these same guys are now betting that they can successfully politicize the coronavirus. And number one, get themselves reelected. And number two, get their hands on a big chunk of this federal stimulus money. And they're betting that they won't be held responsible for that either. I mean, Trump made a big bet three, four months ago when he decided that it was better to ignore the coronavirus than prepare for it. That was back in November of last year when he was first told about it or when the White House was first told about it. We don't have the actual you know, smoking gun that he was told. But, you know, if he wasn't, that's that's a sign of mass incompetence and stupidity on top of that. We know in December he was told about this. I mean, basically the world was told about it. We know in January he knew how bad it was and how bad it could get. But he decided to do happy talk. Oh, no problem. Oh, we've only got one case. It's completely under control. You know, it's... Mnuchin and, you know, Wilbur Ross. I mean, all these guys, oh, it's airtight. Don't worry. That was Larry Kudlow, you know, his economic advice. It's airtight. Don't worry. They placed this bet three, four months ago, and now the bet didn't pay off. 40,000 Americans are dead. But is Trump being held responsible for those 40,000 deaths? I mean, outside of Weijia Zhang, I hope I'm not mispronouncing her name. She was the CBS News correspondent who really gave Trump a grilling in the White House this weekend. I mean, her voice was just like, I can't believe you did this. And God bless her. We need actual reporters. If the media is going to continue this Trump BS show, we need reporters who are actually going to hold him to account and not one out of 20. So, you know, these grifters, these political criminals, they're doubling down on their bet that they can simply BS their way through this whole thing and succeed. And that the Republicans will get reelected and they'll continue to hold the Senate and that Trump will get the White House and all. I mean, this is their bet. And Greg Palace, you know, he's got a new book out. It's called How Trump Stole 2020. I mean, there are some people who are betting he's going to get away with it. You know, like the old Firesign Theater, like he did it again. Right. Is that how this is going to play out? Or is this going to be like Herbert Hoover? Herbert Hoover didn't have a coronavirus. He had an economy. He had the stock market had collapsed. And then that spread to widespread unemployment throughout the economy that took us into the Great Depression. The crash happened in the fall in October of 1929. And by November, December, 
January of 1930, the country was sliding into a depression, as we are doing right now. We are sliding into another depression, not a recession. This is not going to be 2009. This is going to be 1930. The question is, how long is it going to last? And it's going to last a while based on how the Trump administration responds to it. And so far, their response has been entirely lacking, entirely wanting. You know, we're getting happy talk and BS. So do you think that they can pull it off? I'm pretty skeptical, actually. I think that they're going to be called on this thing. But we'll see. We'll see. And, you know, anything else on your mind? I, I, after the break, I've got to tell you about a discovery that I made over the weekend of a great source for news. It was so cool. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And, of course, I'll be picking up your phone calls. You know, how do you think this thing is going to play out? Can Trump jawbone his way out of a Great Depression? Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? Tom, good day to you, sir. Tom, you know, you know who's missing from the whole circuit clown? That, hmm. that, that pose on us is uh, Wilbur Ross. He's missing? What do you mean? I haven't seen him. Like, you know, a lot of times in the press conference, I don't believe the last press conference he was present. So, Yeah, well, um, he's you know, worth he's three very... or four billion bucks. He's probably hiding out in a bunker somewhere in Kansas. Yeah. Or maybe he's on his yacht, you know. I mean, who knows? But you're right. I haven't seen Wilbur Ross in forever. In in a while. But, Tom, I'm I'm very concerned about the election being canceled. Am I overreacting? Yeah. I don't think it'll be canceled. I think that there's going to be a zillion kinds of voter suppression and shenanigans and, and, you know, criminal acts and whatnot being done. I mean, they're going to try and steal the election. This is what this is official Republican policy, right? Steal an election. But there's no legal basis for canceling it. Canceling the election? Okay. Well, in that case, Tom, I do not want Joe Biden to prosecute Trump for me. Trump aggression are on full display, and everybody can see them. What I want Joe Biden is that to say a verb, a noun, and a better health care. Yeah. I'm good with that, Omar. I would add that if you go back and you look at Spiro Agnew, who was the vice president under Richard Nixon, Mm-hmm. that Spiro Agnew, you know, he was a corrupt politician. He was, he was a criminal. And yeah. specifically, his corruption was that he was taking bribes. But it wasn't yeah. the federal government that took down Spiro Agnew. It was the state of New Jersey, as I recall. Maybe it was Delaware, but I'm pretty... Whatever state he was... What, had he been governor or... Senator? He, he was yeah, he was, a, he, he was a governor in Maryland, I believe. He, he came out of Maryland. Maryland, okay. All right. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't remember which state it was. But whatever state he was governor of, that state... That state's attorney general was who was prosecuting him while he was vice president. And, you know, while the White House may be saying that you can't prosecute a president while he's president. (laughs) Well, first of all, this was even before that, before the Nixon decision out of the Department of Justice. But, you know, let's keep in mind that it was a state attorney general who took down Spiro Agnew. I think, frankly, when Trump leaves the White House in January, assuming that he does, that it's going to be Letitia James or whoever follows her who is going to be the one who's going to take down Trump and the Trump crime family. Although it looks like they may be on the verge of declaring bankruptcy. Deutsche Bank is all flipped out because they are 
hundreds of millions, well, maybe billions of dollars in debt to Deutsche Bank. We know of about $325 million in debts. And they can't pay it right now. And Trump is having meetings with the state of Florida. His golf course is apparently on state property that they're leasing from the state. And they can't afford to make their lease payments. There's no doubt in my mind he's getting piles of money out of the uh, Paycheck Protection Program. Um, yeah, that 500, uh, you know, unanimous, that 500 unanimous, that we don't know where he's going to go. I think that's going to go. Yeah, exactly. Father. Yeah, yeah. Thank exactly. you, Tom. You know, it's, it's a mess. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Omar. Good to hear from you. Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. So news sources, first of all, However you are hearing this program, this is a great news source, right? Whether you're getting it from Sirius XM or from a local radio station, a commercial station or a Pacifica station, whether you're watching us on Free Speech TV or YouTube or Facebook Live or Twitter, whatever it may be, those are all great news sources. And odds are, wherever you're getting this show, you will find other good programs that can inform you. Buzzflash.com, which was a major progressive website back years ago, has rebooted and started up again. And they're publishing my rants every day that I open my show with. And uh, they've got the newest one up there, as well as an op-ed that I published over the weekend that also went up on Alternate and Raw Story and this, that, and the other place. Buzzflash.com. But over the weekend, Louise and I, when Trump came on the air on Saturday, we were like, okay, what do we do now? And we discovered that on our TV, on our smart TV, there is a CBC app, not CBD. (laughs) This is CBC as a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. There was a CBC, a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation app on my Apple TV. And so we opened it. And whoa, it was the CBC News. It's 24-7 news, live from Canada. And, of course, the big story uh, when we tuned in on Saturday, it was just breaking, was this uh, crazy guy up in Nova Scotia who had killed 12 or 13 people. No, I guess it's 16 dead now in Nova Scotia. But that was only part of the reporting. They were talking about how everybody in the country now, now there are certain things that qualify you for it or disqualify you for it. So it's not literally everybody, but pretty much everybody in the country of Canada is getting $2,000 a month. And so, you know, they don't have to worry about losing their job. Employers are not firing people. They're simply suspending operations because everybody's got 2000 bucks a month from the government and will until this is over. The Canadian government is, they're doing this thing. There's also, Parliament has to meet, and we're having a similar debate in the U.S. Congress. In Canada, the liberals, as it were, I don't know what the party is called, but basically uh, Trudeau's party. They're trying to say, you know, let us work remotely, right? Let's have Zoom conferences or whatever, you know, and remote voting. But the conservatives in Canada, and it's a small, small, but, you know, active bunch. They've got a few billionaires in Canada who fund their their conservatives, mostly the uh, oil billionaires out in Alberta. They're demanding in-person meetings because they apparently don't believe in the coronavirus. Ah! 
It's, it's a sickness. It's contagious from country to country. Not the coronavirus. Stupid. Stupidity. So anyhow, we saw that on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation over the weekend. Oh, I don't know if I mentioned Free Speech TV as, as a great source of news also and some fabulous programming. We're on Free Speech TV as well. But, you know, when free speech is not carrying your favorite program, this was amazing. And they were talking about how all across the country they've got widespread testing. They're doing contact tracing. I mean, it was just it was so refreshing to see news that was actually like news. There was no opinion. It was just news. It was remarkable. Meanwhile, clever nickname over on DU uh, posted a, a diary that I thought was really, really good. Excuse me, this is Daily Kos, a diary. He says, you know, America came together. We really did. We are here right now, right? Those of us who are sheltering in place, those of us who are putting up with loss of jobs, loss of income, massive economic uncertainty. We're doing this to save our lives and to save the lives of the people we love and we care about, particularly those who may be not so healthy or those who might be elderly. Although we have had children die of this. We've had very young children die of this. We've had teenagers die of this. We've had people in their 20s die of COVID. We've had people in their 30s. In your 30s, you're more likely. In your 40s, you're even more likely and so on. But, you know, we're doing this for each other. The headline, we all came together in the greatest act of human kindness in history. Of course, Trump had to destroy it. I mean, this is what we did. We came together and and a strong, moral, capable, worthy leader would look at that sacrifice and say, how can I honor this? How can I thank people for this? But instead, as Clever Nickname says, what America has is a vicious, selfish, incompetent, cruel, abusive, autocratic, impeached president who looks at all that sacrifice and essentially says, oh, suckers! Or he says, oh, this is a threat to my ambitions. I mean, 40,000 dead people is almost entirely Donald Trump's fault. I say almost because had he acted quickly like Singapore did and South Korea did, we might have the same number of dead people as South Korea, 300. But no, he did what he did. And, you know, according to a report last week in the New York Times, 90% of the deaths, that would be 36,000 dead people in the United States, purely because Trump screwed up, because Trump lied. He lied to us. He procrastinated. He ignored the news, just like George W. Bush ignored the news that bin Laden was going to hit the World Trade Center or was going to hit America. Bush ignored that because that came out of the Clinton administration. You can't trust them Democrats. And Trump ignored this. Did you see this picture of one of these open the country astroturf protests in Colorado? And a healthcare, you know, they're trying to block hospitals, entrances to hospitals. They did it successfully. They blocked ambulances in Detroit. Well, they tried to do this in Colorado. And this nurse comes out with a mask on his face and stands in front of the car, just like the guy with the tank in China. It was amazing. To the Tom Hartman program. I think we're going to start seeing more, you know, essentially counter protests to the protesters. This is amazing. And in Maryland, only three people showed up for one of these rallies. Hey, it's Kaylee. 
Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu/podcast Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in 5 minutes. Funding in as little as 5 days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past. And the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Book Club today, we're reading from Edward Nell's book, Progress and Poverty in Economics, the subtitle, Henry George, and How Growth in Real Estate Contributes to Inequality and financial instability. This is from the introduction, which is subheaded, Reviving the Work of America's Most Original Economist. Andrew Mazzone and I collaborated on a project to review the work of the 19th century American economist Henry George, especially his landmark book, Progress and Poverty, 1879, to see how George's work stood up in the light of modern economics and to determine what could be brought up to date and applied to the contemporary world. We wanted to establish that George's work was relevant and also to criticize American academic economists for having overlooked or rejected George both in his own time 
when his work was a worldwide sensation, and afterward, even today. Andrew died suddenly in the middle of the project. This book is a tribute to him and completes what we began. George began his career as a, an author and public personality with progress and poverty, arguing that progress brought poverty in its wake and that poverty might even outpace progress, an important original point of view that has not lost any of its relevance since George's time. In fact, in our age of burgeoning inequality, it may be more relevant today than ever before. The grounds for this paradoxical interlinking of progress and poverty lay in the effect of rising rents. For George, rents were payment, not for the use of land in the usual sense, but for pure access to specific places and locations. But why should some people have the right to limit others' access to the use of the earth? Surely it belongs to us all. Worse, the limiting of access by demanding payment would undermine the benefits of innovation and hard work. To prevent this linking of progress and poverty, George said a major policy shift in taxation was required. This is well known among economists as the Georgist single tax on rents, or the Henry George theorem. Since George's time, there has been progress both in the economy itself and in economic analysis. The economy has been growing and growth models have become highly sophisticated, in many cases focusing on matters that were central to George a century earlier. But that progress has also led to poverty, obvious in the economy itself. Our mainstream economics is also poverty-ridden, stricken. Our analytical models do not explain the persistence of poverty very well, nor do they account for crises and crashes, let alone the recent stubborn growth of inequality. The mainstream theory of income distribution, marginal productivity, which assumes diminishing returns for all these factors of production and the markets will coordinate their adjustment. Distribution is hopelessly flawed. George rightly rejected an early version of it. And contemporary economic theory has almost completely lost sight of rents and real estate, even though real estate was center stage in the global financial crisis of 2008, a crisis directly resulting from speculation in the housing market. And in 2016, Donald Trump, a real estate developer whose rise to power is intimately linked to rents and real estate speculation, was elected president. With a solid Republican majority in Congress, he began to implement a set of relentlessly regressive trickle-down economic policies that could be expected to lead to more poverty among vast segments of the population. Andrew and I wanted to find insights and tools in George's thought to counter this trend, to support progress and alleviate poverty. Before Andrew died, we had settled on main points in George's writing that we wanted particularly to explore. George emphasized cooperation as well as competition in regard to increasing productivity. He saw that the division of labor and cooperation as settlements developed on new land, created value in location, and generated increases in output. The book Progress and Poverty in Economics by Edward Nell. Anyhow, on the line with us is Dr. Bandy Lee, Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine, a forensic psychiatrist with the Yale University Medical School, co-founder of the World Mental Health Coalition, and editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess the President. The website is dangeruscase.org, and you can tweet Dr. Lee at Bandy, B-A-N-D-Y, X, Lee, one Dr. Lee, welcome back. It's been a while since we've talked. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm wondering if you think that Donald Trump is going downhill or uphill. He seems to be in fine fettle these days, as the old saying goes. 
Well, from my perspective, he is going nowhere but downhill, but depending on perspectives, it may be seen differently. So often we look at his apparent successes or his seemingly getting his own way and interpret that as a success, whereas for me, it's a sign of pathology that will eventually be destructive to those around him as well as himself. Well, and all of us are around him. I, it seems to me that, I mean, we've got over 20,000 dead Americans as a result of his, forgive the phrase, but pissing away several months of time. And exactly. you know, now he's trying to blame this on the governors. It looks to me like he's just producing a, another reality show here. Well, those are the real serious dangers of this. And this is why just as experts were warning against viral pandemic, as we are seeing now, as mental health experts, we had been warning against this because the signs of his mental pathology were pointing to a disastrous situation like this. And what was unusual was that there was no great crisis during the three and a half years that he was president. And during his last year, we have gotten one of the greatest crises that we could be facing. Of course, it could have been contained to something much smaller as has happened every few years. But unfortunately, we have him as president, so it's been magnified to the maximum possible. Crises provide politicians, even mediocre politicians, even incompetent politicians, you know, it comes to mind, provides them with a great opportunity. Rudy Giuliani, for example, over the objections of pretty much everybody, put his, for the city of New York, the Emergency Response Center, at the top of the World Trade Center a year after it had been bombed by the blind shake and had been targeted on numerous occasions. It was like the, the most stupid place in all of New York City to put your emergency response center. And yet he came out of that smelling like a rose. George W. Bush spent nine months completely ignoring the warnings of Al Gore and Bill Clinton and, and his own people, Richard Clark running around That's with his right. hair on fire inside uh, Bush's White House. And yet he got so popular from 9-11 that he got himself two wars, got himself reelected. And Dick Cheney went, uh, took his Halliburton stock, his company from being on the verge of bankruptcy because of his uh, acquisition of Dresser Industries in 98 to becoming very, very rich. I mean, a multi, multi, multi-millionaire as a result of that. So do you think that if Trump can pull this off, if he can not even necessarily get reelected, but if he can just divert our attention enough from his failures that he can make this thing happen? And how does that tie into his sociopathy or his psychology? It seems to me that he's been running this grift his whole entire life, that ADHD or whatever you want to call it, that his short attention span in school was probably earning him punishments from dad and mom and teachers, which is why they had to dump him into a military school. And thus he discovered that if he just lied constantly, then he got away with things. After all, he was white, he was rich. What do you think? Yes, all of those things played a role in his being able to get away with this. Uh, but of course, sociopathic individuals, as you say, uh, are all around us all the time. They consist of anywhere between one and upper levels of 5% of the population. And so I have specialized in treating them, and therefore I have been exposed to many of them. But usually society contains them. What is unusual in this situation is that 
society was also impaired to a level that instead of being repelled by pathology, they felt attracted to it, or at least his followers were attracted enough and the rest of us were powerless enough that this has gone on. And I'm glad you also mentioned Giuliani and Bush because that was really the era when I saw deep-seated problems beginning to surface. Of course, the origin of those problems go back further. But it is in many ways very parallel. And in fact, when it was revealed that Donald Trump had missed the coronavirus warnings and the seriousness of it, I immediately thought back to George W. Bush and the fact that people were also not able to see through the lies that were being told and the deceptions that were being made during the time of George W. Bush or even Rudy Giuliani, who just grabbed a situation that was already improving on its own and then claimed all credit for improving New York City and so on. But we are now seeing it at a level that's multifold worse. And rather than the population recognizing this and being in outrage about it, what we see is that the population is acquiescing even further. And so the more abuse they receive, in other words, it is really abuse, both physical and survival-related and psychological. So the more the population is abused, the more it's accepting abuse and admiring the abuser and idealizing him and following along. And that is a very worrisome sign. But George W. Bush, at least, and I believe this is a characteristic of a high-functioning sociopath, was able to behave as if he had empathy and as if he cared and as if he understood what was really going on and probably actually even did understand what was really going on. Donald Trump seems not to be able to even pretend to have empathy. Is that a function of a low IQ or is that a function of just severe damage, severe sociopathy? How come he can't pull it off? Ted Bundy could fake being a nice guy. Why can't Trump? Well, he's finding less of a need to. He he can do it when his survival absolutely depends on it, but he's finding that he can get away with quite a lot without being accused. Just as he said during the campaign, he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot, and people will still approve of him. Yeah. Yeah, and he did say that. I think we've got over 20,000 dead Americans now. He's shot more than one of us. Dr. Bandy Lee, the author of the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Dangeruscase.org is the website. You're listening to Tom Hartman. We're reading today from Justin Frank, Dr. Justin Frank's book, Trump on the Couch, Inside the Mind of the President. He's the guy who wrote Bush on the Couch and Obama on the Couch. He's a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. This is from the introduction. There's no question that Trump is mentally unfit in ways that make him psychologically unsuited for the presidency. That in itself is a truly alarming turn of events. And I'd write the entire book in all caps if I thought that would better convey the sense of urgency with which it is written and should be read. Any number of troubling mental illness diagnoses and character evaluations can be and have been accurately applied to Trump. Both can vary from analyst to analyst, however, without necessarily sacrificing any of the accuracy. 
More to the point, the true value of a diagnosis is to determine an appropriate course of treatment, and there's no indication that any sort of treatment is a viable option. Trump on the couch then seeks not simply to make the case that Trump is not well, but rather to show how he is unwell in ways that would have been of particular interest to the applied psychoanalysts whose investigation likely preceded our own, the Russians, and perhaps even their American allies or counterparts, who in the long tradition of intelligence gathering examined Trump's psyche and found an opportunity for exploitation. Trump's presidency caps a lifetime of dysfunction and disorder that is not likely to be healed while he is in office. Just as Trump's ascendancy among voters gives expression to long-standing trends in the American electorate's psyche that are not going to be easily addressed. However, if we can identify certain aspects of these disorders and trends that may have contributed to Trump and his voters fusing into a shared belief system, then we have a better chance of fostering the kind of honest cultural discussion that will be necessary in order to contain and repair the damage that has already been done. Understanding Trump calls for a consideration of his psychodynamics almost certainly more rigorous than he has ever embarked upon on his own. Trump dismissed psychotherapy as a crutch in his 2004 Playboy interview. Years later, talking to biographer Michael D'Antonio, he described in greater detail a generalized aversion to introspection beyond the therapeutic setting. Quote, I don't like to analyze myself because I might not like what I see, he told D'Antonio. I don't like to analyze myself. I don't like to think too much about the past, end of quote. Even armed with a detailed family history, we can't capture Trump in action with only the tools of applied psychoanalysis. Like some of the most disturbed patients I've worked with, Trump is so erratic, constantly changing the topic, elevating the stakes, and raising the volume, that one doesn't know what to expect from him next. It's hard to imagine him in treatment. Even as the subject of applied psychoanalytical investigation, he behaves like a patient who is simultaneously banging in the consulting room window, rattling on its door, ringing the phone, and texting or tweeting his demands for attention. Trump presents so many troubling affects that it's hard to remember them all. In the final weeks of the first year of Trump's presidency, Michael Wolff and David K. Johnston published accounts of the Trump White House that present a president with a startling number of disturbing characteristics. Any one of these demonstrable and suspected traits would raise calls for a psychoanalytic investigation if it was done on a layperson. In a president, in aggregate, they are truly cause for alarm. The list of worrisome evident and alleged attributes that emerge in these and other portraits is long. Narcissist, liar, racist, sexist, adulterer, baby, hypocrite, chiseler, tax cheat, outlaw, psychopath, paranoid, fraud, ignorant, vengeful, delusional, arrogant, greedy, contemptuous, unsympathetic, learning disabled, cruel, obstructor of justice, threat to the Constitution, traitor. The list is so long that it can be overwhelming. It's a challenge to remember the beginning by the time you make it to the end. There are times when I wish someone would help us remember all the troubling aspects of Trump's character and behavior, past and present, in a way that would encourage recognition of the totality of his pathology rather than its component parts, which individually cause alarm before being temporarily forgotten when the next emergency presents itself. As an applied psychoanalyst, my task is not only to appreciate the full list, but also to ignore the big picture and focus on a single pathology at a time. Practitioners of applied psychoanalysis approach their subject as both theoretician and clinician. 
the theoretician endeavors to piece things together to figure things out, while the clinician tries to approach each session capable of being surprised, as if his mind were a blank slate. The analysis in the following pages aspires to accomplish both goals. Reviewing Trump's record with a clinician's eye, preparing to be surprised by the unexpected observation, and assembling these findings into a more comprehensive portrait. The image of hypothetical patient Trump rattling the consulting room door and banging on the window reminds us that President Trump doesn't want us to see the entire list at once. Not only that, but patients I've treated who are reminiscent of Trump cannot tolerate being inside the consulting room either. They leave my office whenever they feel unable to think their way through an anxiety-provoking interpretation, much the way Trump leaves press briefings when the questions get too close. Trump on the Couch by Justin Frank. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Trina in Skokie, Illinois. Hey, Trina, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning. There's uh, been a question that's been bothering me for weeks now. You know, I just told myself that, you know, eventually we'll be up and running with the testing, and we still don't have testing. What is going on? Can you address that and tell us what you think might be going on behind the testing problem? And I'll take my answer offline. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Vicki. The problem is that it takes months. It takes time. It, it can take months to develop good tests. I mean, when the World Health Organization, China published the genome of this virus in the first couple of weeks of January. Within a week, the WHO had certified that and defined the standards for testing. And within a week of that, this was all in January, a German manufacturer had started making the first test kits that they were shipping. The World Health Organization by the end of January was shipping all over the world to 60 different countries. All that was back in January. And that's why now in Australia, tests are widespread. They're widely available. In Europe, they're widely available. Germany is testing everybody and their brother. I mean, they're just, you know, and they're not just doing virus testing like we're doing here. They're also doing antibody testing to find out who's already had it. And this is why Germany has this insanely low death rate. And it's because basically they're testing people who are not symptomatic and they're catching a lot. Of, a lot of this stuff is coming out of Germany and South Korea. They're discovering that, you know, a good chunk of people who are walking around contagious and feeling just fine are contaminated with the virus, are actually carrying the virus, have the active virus in them and their body just hasn't launched an immune response to it or it has and it's just not taking them down and nobody knows exactly why. But in any case, the testing kits take a few months to develop and to start manufacturing in large numbers. We have 325 to 330 million people in the United States. You know, if we're gonna test any significant fraction of them, I think we've tested like two and a half or three million people so far, which is pretty substantial. You know, Trump says, we've tested more people than anybody in the world. That's true, but it's a drop in the bucket. And so to give it just a very specific and direct answer to your question, why is testing not widely available right now? It's because Donald Trump pissed away a couple of months. 
That's the bottom line. It wasn't until the middle of March that he started taking this seriously and started reaching out to testing manufacturers in the United States and saying, please get up to scale and let's do this. And, you know, he reached out to Quest Labs and LabCorp and gave them a million and a half bucks to, to cover their development costs and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, now everybody who walks into the White House gets tested with a 15-minute test, an instant test. If you're going to be around Trump or Pence, we got to find out. But not so much anywhere else. And it's, it's, it's just because Trump's response has been totally incompetent. And I think that that's one of the reasons why he's trying to stir up these armed revolts against Democratic governors is because he wants to deflect attention away from the fact that Trump lied, Trump played golf, Trump did rallies, and Americans died. And one of the things that we know is had he simply locked down the country two weeks before New York State did, 90% of all the deaths in America would not have happened. I mean, that's pretty mind-boggling when you think about it. Christopher in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Christopher, what's up? Hey, Tom. Hey, I wanted to give you an update on the Chase situation with my mortgage. You might recall that I talked with you a while back, but I think I told you that a loan officer told me Hey, there's a forbearance program, no problem. And he confirmed over the phone, no balloon payment. I was very happy. He gave me a URL to one of their sites, and I looked up the forbearance, and it says, yes, there is a balloon payment. (laughs) So I was pretty upset. I called the guy back. He wouldn't answer my calls. I emailed them several times. But at least the guy said to me, I misspoke. But, uh, you know, and so I called uh-huh. his boss, told him the same thing, and his boss was very good. And I said to his boss, you know, if you don't know what is, is in the URL on that site, you can't comment on that. Yeah. And then I was, uh, she agreed, I was going to run it up to people in authority in, within Chase. But before I was able to do that, I got a call from a guy within the disaster department of Chase. And he confirmed to me that they are going to give me a 90-day moratorium. Without a balloon and payment. Without a balloon payment. But hey, hey but squeaky wheel works. Well, I guess it does, and that's what I always do. And, and what I usually do is call high. Nothing to do with drinking or anything. But you, mm. you need to talk to somebody that has the authority because the people below them are just reiterating company policy. So, right. They're not decision so, makers. They, they have the power to say no, but not the power to say yes. I get it. Exactly. That's fascinating. Christopher, and, thanks for the update. I appreciate it. And good luck. <clears throat> Robbie in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Robbie, what's up? Hey, just wanted to point out some of the hypocrisy that I'm seeing with the Republicans. Typically, all these Republicans, they have, as you had mentioned, you're literally saying that people are going to die. They're expecting it. They want it. They said it was patriotic. How can they call themselves pro-life? Yeah, yeah really. It, you know, it costs them money. Then they're all of a sudden, you know, like, oh, well, go die for your country, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out. Also, the U.S. Army and FEMA haven't been doing anything except stealing medical supplies. Why do you think that is? I think that Trump is building up a stash to give to the red state governors. That's his plan. <laughs> In my opinion, I really think that he's he's very, very concerned that, I mean, he knows. He's got actual scientists advising him. He's got Anthony Fauci there. He knows right, right, right. that these red states are going to get wiped out, the ones that are well, not doing I, shelter in place. 
it seems to me like this is a plan for their fascist takeover. This is how they are creating discourse amongst us. It's a genocide on poor people. The whole reason why, you know, it's affecting black communities is because of the poverty associated in the hospitals themselves there. What I see is they're pushing forth this agenda, killing poor people. That's the second possible reason why they're doing these protests. These protests are exclusively, almost entirely white men, you know, young white men. And it may well be that the statistics are in, that it almost seems like they're very happy with that. And it, not almost seems, it does seem like they're quite happy with the fact that the people who are dying are the older, you know, the boomers and people of color by and large. I mean, you know, black people, 70% of the deaths in Michigan and Georgia and Louisiana, but they're, you know, 15 more or less percent of the population. You could argue that this is genocide. This is giving infected blankets to the Indians kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah I'm not going to discount that at all, Robbie. The end game is what I'm really concerned about, which is a, a vaccination, uh, a mandatory vaccination and an ID chip, which is going to determine whether you've been vaccinated or not. I feel like this is kind of pushing forth that end game agenda that all conspiracy theorists are really scared about. and They've been ranting about it. It really is well, kind of true, though. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I think it's more likely that these guys have bought into the herd immunity theory. In fact, there's still, you know, some of these conservatives are still using that phrase herd immunity. And what they want is they want, you know, the red states are going to get all exposed and then people are going to be sick and then the people are going to get over it. And now yeah. they're the immune ones and they're going to be the last ones standing, sort of like, you know, the, the end can of the I, tournament. Can I tell you my last, my last prediction? I got a prediction. It's going to happen this Wait. week. Got a prediction for you. Trump and the Republicans are going to start blaming the coronavirus on the Chinese and get compensation from them. Oh, he's already blaming it on them. And, and now he's referring to, to Joe Biden as Beijing Joe. I mean, this is, this is what's coming up next. Yeah, Robbie, I think you're right. Uh, thanks a lot for the call. So the Washington Post obtained a copy of a new report from the Centers for Disease Control and FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, both of these agencies saying that reopening the economy right now, quote, will entail a significant risk of resurgence of the virus. Significant risk. The CDC is we need to have an elaborate system to test race Americans on a massive scale. Now, you know, this is what Germany is doing. It's working well for them. This is what South Korea did. Even in South Korea, they opened up the economy a little bit and boom, people started getting coronavirus again. I mean, it may well be that we're going to be locked down for quite some time, or at least anybody over 40 is going to be locked down for some significant amount of time. But Trump is not going to be talking about this. He's not going to be talking about the risks. He wants his hotels and his golf course to be open, period, full stop. He wants the money flowing back into the Trump coffers, even though he figured out a way to get himself inserted into this bailout bill, him and the whole Trump crime family, all the grifters associated with him. They got that in there, and I'm sure Wilbur Ross is making out like a bandit now, too, and Betsy DeVos, the other billionaires in his cabinet. This is wrong. Meanwhile, this over at the New York Times in early March. Now, keep in mind, just, just visualize this for a minute. In January, we get our first coronavirus case, January 20th. So does South Korea. South Korea, within a week, has started testing people. Well, within two weeks. Within a week, they had the test. 
And within two weeks, they're testing hundreds of thousands of people in South Korea and doing sheltering in place immediately, right after January 20th. Donald Trump, no. He goes on TV and he says, don't worry, it's going to magically vanish. You know, we've got no problem. It's just one guy. We've got this under control. Steve Mnuchin, oh, yeah, it's great. Larry Kudlow, it's airtight. Don't worry. Uh, Everybody's giving us happy talk. That was January through February. Same thing, more happy talk. But during February, the virus is spreading across the United States. And the spread is impossible to ignore because deaths are starting to pop up here and there. In particularly in New York. But Donald Trump is still doing happy talk and BS. And then we get into March and early March. They're still doing happy talk and BS. And here's this amazing story. It's like during the first week of March... Donald Trump busts into a coronavirus, barged is the word they use, barged into a, but this guy Palma over at Raw Story, barged into a coronavirus task force meeting and floated the idea of starting a White House talk radio show. I mean, this guy, he's got to have his rallies. He needs the ego strokes. Well, now he's got his rallies every day on network television. But he wanted to do a radio show and then, you know, kind of the official... This is the New York Times' uh, Elena Plot writing, No one in the room was sure how to respond to, the official said. Someone suggested hosting the show in the mornings or on weekends to steer clear of, uh, of Rush Limbaugh's schedule. But Mr. Trump shook his head, saying he envisioned his show as two hours a day, every day. And were it not for Mr. Limbaugh and the risk of encroaching on his territory, he reiterated he would do it. Oh, this is amazing. And Plot writes... Trump reportedly has grown exceptionally fond of Limbaugh since the pandemic rise because, you know, Limbaugh is basically sucking up to him constantly every day. And so Elena Plott in the New York Times writes, now as multiple voices vie for the president's ears on the appropriate timeline for America's path to normalcy, Mr. Limbaugh is amplifying Mr. Trump's instinct for swiftness. And for this president, as much as as well as for much of his party, Mr. Limbaugh's affirmation remains a powerful motivator. Meanwhile, your coronavirus check is coming and your bank can grab it. Rhonda Kent, chief disbursement officer with the Treasury's Bureau of Fiscal Services, was on a conference call with a bunch of big banks. And she said that, and I quote, actually, this is from the news report. She responded twice that there's nothing in the law that precludes that action. That action being that the banks, if you owe the bank fees, late fees, your credit card is behind in payment, whatever, the 1200 bucks gets wired into your checking account, your bank has the right to simply take the money. Brilliant. Meanwhile, Sharisti Magan is is writing over at (laughs) scoopwhoop.com. All six countries with the best response to COVID-19 have one thing in common. Think about this for a minute. The six countries that are doing the best. Iceland has tested everybody in the country. Denmark, Finland, Belgium, New Zealand, and Germany. Those six countries. Way ahead of the curve. They did social distancing. They did shelter in place. They are bailing out their businesses. Every single one of these countries all of everybody who had a job still has a job. The government is giving money to the employers to pass it through to the employees as paychecks. The employers are not going out of business. The employees are not going on on food stamps or welfare or unemployment. What do these six countries have in common? Germany, New Zealand, Belgium, Finland, Denmark, and Iceland. They all flattened the curve. 
They all had good proactive decision making. What they have in common is they are all headed by women. Every single one of these countries has a female prime minister. Finland, Denmark, Iceland, Norway, Belgium, and Germany. Every single one. You know, it's been said often that uh, women are better decision makers than men. Uh, you know, I know just looking back at my lifetime, <laughs> case in point, I think that's absolutely true. And boy, if you didn't need more evidence, it's right there. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Pat Mitchell. It's titled Becoming a Dangerous Woman, Embracing Risk to Change the World. This is from the preface titled The Most Dangerous Woman in the Room. Yes, I'll be there. Eve Ensler was calling with an invitation to what she described as the meeting of movements planned for the first week of January 2017. In the wake of a polarizing presidential election in the United States, Eve had decided it was time for activists to come together to shape strategies that would unify and leverage the collective power of a wide range of social justice organizations. Who else is coming, I asked. I'm not releasing the invitation list, Eve replied, but you'll want to be in the room. Indeed, I did want to be in that room, knowing from past experiences that any meeting or event that Eve organized would be meaningful. So I showed up, as the invitation indicated, at a nondescript building in Stone Ridge, New York, and surrendered my cell phone to the smiling young volunteers at the front door. Best to have all communication devices outside the room, was the explanation, which of course heightened my anticipation about what would transpire within the room. I entered a large room and saw Eve standing at the front with folding chairs in a circle. Mingling about the room were some familiar faces. The meeting's other conveners, Kimberly Crenshaw of the African American Policy Forum, Naomi Klein, award-winning author and activist, independent media entrepreneur and journalist Laura Flanders, and Jane Fonda, actor and activist. We were asked to find our seats, and Eve began. We are living in dangerous times, was her opening line, and such times call for new levels of activism from all the communities represented in this room. Let's begin by identifying who's in the room. One by one, the introductions began. I'm one of the founders of the Women's March. I'm the executive director of 350.org. I run Project South. With each introduction, the level of leadership and activists' credentials became more impressive and, for me, more intimidating. I could feel my anxiety building. How was I going to identify myself? I have no title and was no longer running an organization, having left my CEO position at the Paley Center for Media the previous spring. I could say that I was the CEO of Pat Mitchell Media with its grand total of two employees, including myself, but that felt wholly inadequate to explain why I belonged in that room. I mentally rehearsed some other options. I could say I was a lifetime advocate for women, true enough, if a little vague. I could list some of my previous titles, but why make a point of being the former anything? I was struggling with, to come up with how to identify myself in the present, an identity that would hopefully give some indication of why Eve had included me in this circle of activists and leaders. Finally, it was my turn. Before I knew it, I heard myself saying, I'm Pat Mitchell and I'm a dangerous woman. I'm not sure exactly what prompted this personal declaration of dangerousness, but I could tell from the looks of surprise that I needed to add a bit more context. At this time in my life, about to turn 75, I continued, I have nothing left to prove, less to lose, and I'm ready to take more risks and to be less politic and polite. As Eve said, these are dangerous times, 
and dangerous times call for dangerous women. That got a big sisterly yes from Eve and others in the circle, including Jane Fonda, who was sitting across from me, and stood up declaring, well, I'm older than my friend Pat, so that makes me even more dangerous. Laughter erupted, of course, and I could sense that others were contemplating exactly what becoming more dangerous to meet the challenges of dangerous times would mean for each of us and for the work we had convened to consider. Certainly, Jane Fonda's life of activism is a textbook case for being bold and brave. During our many years of friendship, I've, I'd witnesses, I've witnessed her willingness to take risks for a good cause, to speak out and show up, even when it meant personal peril or sacrifice. At 81, she is still on the front lines, campaigning for domestic and restu restaurant workers' rights, standing with the American Indian communities, protesting natural resource exploitation at Standing Rock, and busier as an actor than ever. In her book, Prime Time, Jane advanced the idea that older women have the potential to become the most powerful population on the planet. She's a great example of how we embrace that potential at every age. My personal potential for becoming dangerous is perhaps more directly linked to my friendship with Eve Ensler. From our first conversation in war-torn Sarajevo in 1998, I've been deeply inspired by her courage and her commitment to do whatever is necessary to end violence against women everywhere. Taking risks comes easier to Eve than to many. Writing and performing the vagina monologues, making it the centerpiece of a global movement, V-Day, to end gender-based violence, is a transformative approach to activism that I feel privileged to have experienced. Yes, I was an activist and woman's advocate before I met Eve, but through my relationship with her and as a board member of the V-Day movement, I've met activists facing dangers every day to create change in some of the most difficult places on earth to be a woman. But until that day, I had not felt dangerous myself. Declaring myself a dangerous woman still feels a bit, well, dangerous. And I readily admit to some second thoughts about declaring it even more widely and boldly as the title of this book. But every day since that convening, I'm discovering more about what being dangerous means in my life and why I believe that it's time for us, women and the men who stand with us, at whatever age or place in life's journey, to embrace risks and engage with renewed passion and collective purpose in making the world a safer place for women and girls. Pat Mitchell, Becoming a Dangerous Woman. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.